This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 98. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 98 you're listening to. That's right, 98. And it's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. Welcome back. Good to have you, and I appreciate you listening. So, um, yeah, let's talk about it. Number 100, coming up. So, a couple details. So, uh, there's the Working Class Audio 100th episode party happening. It's happening on November 18th from 7 p.m. until, you know, I assume 11, 12 o'clock. And... Uh, we're going to have a free free beer and wine, and, uh, of course, we're going to have Fists of Flour pizza truck come. And they'll be making uh, fresh pizzas outside in slices, whole pies and slices, and you can, of course, pick yourself up a pizza. Now, that, that part's not free. The beer and the wine's free. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of that for you. But then uh, plan on eating dinner at the Fists of Flour truck because they make a fantastic pizza. And then we're going to have some sponsor giveaways. I've been on the phone off and on all week talking to everybody at all the companies that uh, are involved and we're going to have some we're going to have some nice prizes I got to say and what we're doing we're striving to give away prizes locally in the bay area as well as online now about that preceding this party is a uh, invite only event where it's primarily I've I've invited primarily people who have been on the show we only have so many seats available so that part will be streamed on the internet and of course done in front of a live audience and it will be an interview with Cookie Marenko and Stephen Hart, two Bay Area recording engineers with a long list of experiences. We'll just leave it at that. So, yeah, we're going to be talking to Cookie and to Stephen in, in front of this live audience and in front of, I guess, a world audience of you know people who are tuning in. So pay attention to the Working Class Audio Facebook page, I would say primarily and secondary, the Working Class Audio website to get the details on where the link will be that you will, you know, catch the stream on. We're kind of really at this point not sure if we're going to go with uh, Facebook's platform or the YouTube platform. So I guess we're going to have to make a decision soon, huh? But we'll take care of that. We'll inform you so you can tune in. And you need to be on the email list in order to participate in the potential to win some prizes from our sponsors. So Make sure to go over to the uh, Working Class Audio site at workingclassaudio.com, sign up, and uh, add your name to our email list. Uh, I don't email all that often, I'll be honest with you. It's, uh, it's a rare occasion. When I do, it's, it's, I try to you know, do it with a purpose and not just continually bombard you with information. I get enough emails, I bet you do too, so let's just not go down that path. So yeah, that's it. The 100th show party coming up. Now, I've said it before that, you know, the shows come out on Mondays. Well, that Monday, there's going to be no show uh, because the show's happening on that Friday. So it's going to be a little different. Maybe, you know, you're going to be setting up at the studio or commuting to your job and you're going to be like, hey, where's the new episode? Well, there is no episode. It's going to happen on Friday. So that's how that's going to work. I will release it as a proper episode that you can download later. Uh, that, of course, will be available. But that following Monday... Uh, after the party, there is going to be WCA number 101. So you're kind of going to get hit at once with episode 100 as, you know, that's going to be available and episode 101 will also be available. So 
Yeah, it's going to be exciting. I'm very happy about it. I, I, I don't know how you all feel, but, uh, you know, 100 episodes, most podcasts don't even last past 10. Yeah, pretty, pretty monumental. So let's get on with it for today. Let's talk about what is happening. Uh, our guest today, which uh, is going to be uh, Mr. Stuart Carreras, yet again, another person who I made friends with many, many years ago through the Tape Op Conference and the Potluck Audio Conference. Stuart used to live in New Orleans, and as you'll hear in our interview, he went through Hurricane Katrina and eventually decided to leave and, and leave New Orleans and move out to Los Angeles. You know, since then, I we've stayed in touch only loosely on Facebook when Facebook, of course, you know, became a thing because it came became a thing long after we had met. And he's gone on to work with some pretty interesting and very, you know, kind of a different combination of people than one would expect. Billy Ray Cyrus. You know, for those of you that are of age, do you remember Achy Breaky Heart, right? Billy Ray Cyrus, Nick Lachey, uh, Jack Osborne, uh, Jason Charles Miller from uh, Godhead. And uh, yeah, so he's worked with some interesting people and he's done a combination of producing, engineering, mixing, uh, writing. Uh, he's a musician and he's kind of all in, you know, he's doing it all. I called him up and I chatted with him and just said, Hey man, you know, what, what do you got going on? What's, what's been happening since we last talked and he informed me what's going on. I said, well, I think you should be on the show based on that. So, uh, I'm really happy to have had the chance to catch up with Stuart and, uh, looking forward to having him here on the show. So, uh, I hope you enjoy it as well. Stuart Carrera is coming up shortly. So let's see, we, we talked about the party. We talked about Stuart and I, uh, I got to mention this because this is just mind-blowing to me. I, I got to say thank you to all of you. Uh, and the reason is, is this has been, this is the month of October as this episode goes to air. It's the month of October is concluding. I just want to say thank you because October has been the most downloads we've had since the show started. I mean, flat out. It just blew out all the, the previous records uh, by far. And it's Saturday the 29th as I record this. And I'm looking at the numbers here, and it looks like as of the 29th, in fact, let me hit refresh and I'll tell you. Yep, 19,226 downloads for the month of October. I honestly cannot believe that. That's pretty amazing. I remember when I hit 500 downloads, and I thought there's no way it can go beyond that because who wants to listen to what we're talking about? And I was of course, proven wrong. And of course, that's why I've kept going because you all seem to really enjoy what we're talking about. And we will continue to talk about it. And we will, of course, continue to expand the website. I do have some pretty cool things coming uh, next year in uh, 2017. So I'm excited to bring you those things. And I hope you'll stay hanging in there with me and listening to every episode. And uh, yeah, so just I want to say thanks. I appreciate it. And uh, I know that there's a lot of podcasts out there. I know that there's a lot of content out there. Some There's some great people some and who are friends of mine who are doing some great stuff and some great people who, are, who I don't even know who are doing great stuff. So we're all competing for your attention, and I, I sincerely appreciate you tuning in, and I hope you enjoy what we're doing here. So here we come to 100. I appreciate that. Let's just get into it. Let's, uh, I'll stop the, the talking. Stuart Carreras here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, as I always like to say. Thank you for having me. I think just as a bit of background, we should let everybody know, just like many, many other people on this show, our relationship is the direct result of Tape Op Con. I think, did we originally meet in New Orleans? I, that's what I was trying to figure out today. The last one 
that I recall attending was in 2006 in Tucson when it was fucking hot as hell. And I just stayed in the hotel room the whole time. <laughs> but you were there for that one, right? 2006? I think I, oh yeah, I was. Because actually, yeah, you moderated the panel we were on. I guess I, I was, was there. <laughs> yeah, right. But I think you're right. It was 2004 that we met Tape OpCon. That was the first one in New Orleans, I believe. I speak fondly of those times of uh, the Tape Op Conference. Then, uh, of course, what it became was the Potluck Audio Conference with Craig Schumacher. Right. Um, very magical times. And I know that sounds hippy-dippy, but man, I made so many friends in that time period. And as we were speaking on the phone the other day, I mean, so what? That was 10 years ago. Yeah, man. You were from Louisiana, right? Originally, yeah. I grew up there and I moved away from there about at about uh, 18 or 19 and uh, moved to Dallas, Texas with $60 in my pocket. I was going to be a rock star. That didn't really work out so well with 60 bucks. Even <laughs> in 19, not, 1991, 60 bucks doesn't get you too far. But I had a very strong constitution. <laughs> and then I, then I moved to Orlando for a few years. And in 1996, I came back to uh, the southern part of Louisiana, which is like a completely different country, essentially. And uh, I was in New Orleans from 1990, October of 96 to August of 2005, which we know is pretty, yeah, monumental time. Did uh, Hurricane Katrina, was that the, the key factor that got you out? Yeah. And for me, it was probably a blessing in disguise because... I think, I don't necessarily know that I outgrew New Orleans, but I, I think I got as much out of New Orleans as I could. And for me to grow musically and, and otherwise, I, I just had to leave, you know what I mean? And fortunately, what happened is I lit, my wife and I had a house in, in Gretna, Louisiana, which was in New Orleans, in the New Orleans metropolitan area, but it was kind of, it was the one place in New Orleans that was unaffected by floodwaters. So what happened was we were able to sell the house for 12% over market value, and that facilitated the move to Los Angeles. And it was very quick. It was very immediate. And we were, as most people in New Orleans, we evacuated, and those who couldn't leave were the ones who you saw on TV in the Superdome and under those conditions. But, uh, and I remember watching the floodwaters. We, we evacuated to my mother's house, which was like four hours uh, north in Monroe, Louisiana. As we were watching this all happen, we just knew that we were going to leave and that was going to be it because her job was pretty much completed <laughs> at that point. And uh, so was mine. So my studio incurred, I think it was maybe two and a half feet of water that sat in the studio for three weeks. Yeah, it, it, it was pretty bad, but I managed to salvage practically everything except for every bit of anything that was touching the floor, like all the furniture, all the cabling, stands, guitar amps, but all the outboard gear, the Pro Tools rig, microphones were okay, lots of instruments were okay, but yeah, man, it was it was rough, but it's it was kind of surreal because it all happened so quickly. We weren't even allowed back into New Orleans until almost October first, and we were living in Los Angeles within a month and a half of that. It was just kind of like once we decided initially to leave, 
then we got the ball rolling and we were just kind of like just making strides to get out of there. So that's what happened. What was the uh, insurance situation for you in the studio? I do recall there was a conflict with the homeowner's insurance being one entity and flood insurance being a separate entity. And there was this uh, stipulation about if you incurred less than seven feet of water, then it didn't qualify for flood insurance. And my studio was in a completely different commercial location. I can't remember how much I got back, but I did take a loss mostly. I think I might've gotten $4,000 or something like that, which kind of covered some of the cabling maybe, <laughs> but you know. Were you disappointed in, in the outcome with the insurance company? To be honest, I didn't give it much. It, it was kind of one of those things where I knew we were going to be okay with the sale of the house because we profited pretty well off the sale of the house. And at that time, it, it, it's kind of hard to describe because it was like what you would see in a post-apocalyptic sort of a movie. It was very martial law. It was just like uh, nothing but the po a, a police state. And it was one of those things where it was so difficult to understand the magnitude of what occurred and then how, how many other people had been affected on a much grander scale than we did. We, we made it out, you know, great. I mean, we just had a little wind damage, made some repairs to the house and we were the fuck out of there. You know what I mean? I literally went to Home Depot grabbed a for sale by owner sign, stuck it in the yard and it was sold in two weeks. And my, my house was sold. It was predicated upon the sale of the potential buyer's house whose home was blighted, but someone wanted to buy her land and then bulldoze her house. And my, the sale of my house was predicated upon those things happening. So it was all, and then I flew out to Los Angeles in the middle of November of 2005 and stayed with a friend. You know James Lugo, right? Mm -mm. Anyway, he, he, he said, come out, because I, I think I ran into him at something in New York. It might have been like AES in 2005. And um, he, he said, you know, if you want to come out to Los Angeles, you can stay on my couch for, uh, you know, a couple of weeks, and you can go, you know, check it out and see what you want to do. And I did that. Got, had a new studio situation set up there for when I sold the house and came, finally came out there. And uh, it all just kind of worked out. I really, it, it it happened so quickly for me to like recount the the steps or, or you know everything involved in that happening. It's just, it's it's really kind of hard and unfathomable because it it just happened so quickly, you know. What made you choose Los Angeles, even though you were proximity wise closer to Nashville, New York? Because at that time, I think. All of the, it, we had a short list of, of uh, possibilities, you know, again, New York, Nashville, probably Seattle might've been one of them, but, and then Los Angeles and San Francisco, because I love San Francisco. It's like one of my favorite cities in the world. And it's kind of a sister city to New Orleans, as you know, mm -hmm. I don't know. It, it just seemed like if we had to make a move, we may as well make the big move. You know what I mean? And it, and once that was decided, we just kind of went with it. There was really no questioning it. Did you end up buying a house when you got to Los Angeles? No, we rented because it's pretty expensive out here. Yeah, we got a great place at the time. And yeah, I mean, again, that was another one of those scenarios where it was like when I told people what we found in terms of an apartment, 
which was a house, uh, the price we were paying for it, they were just like, how did you find that? I'm like, I don't know. I came in town, you know, and I looked through Craigslist and called a few places, saw them, and I said, oh, I'll take that one. I'll be here in two weeks, <laughs> you know? Hmm. So that was it. I've talked to many people about transitioning to new cities, and they always say that, uh, I think it was Sylvia Massey, actually, that said, hmm. you know, it, typically it's it's like a two-year process to get acclimated, to get really settled in. Would you agree? Well, I had a studio situation because uh, a, a friend of mine had a studio in the perfect location. I mean, literally on the corner of Hollywood and Coanga. And our downstairs neighbor was Glenn Ballard and Dave Stewart, who shared a studio. And those were my neighbors. You know what I mean? Hmm. Johnny, Johnny Resnick was down the hall. And, you know, it was just, it was this amazing facility. This, it was, it used to be an old bank building where Howard Hughes kept his fortune. It was super cool. One of those cool historic buildings. And uh, anyway, I was there for 10 years. It was just this magical place for a while. And, and it, it's weird because I'm not really sure. Again, it's like I, I said, you know, I need a studio. I need to do this. Went and talked to a friend of mine. He said, hey, you can move in You know, here. Bring all your gear in here. We'll partner up. We'll split up the time. Done. It was like that easy. And this was like, you know, a month prior to that, it was this catastrophic, you know, event in New Orleans and that whole area. And the next thing I know, it's like everything's just kind of falling into place, like completely with without any effort. Hmm. It was that that made me, you know, kind of validated the uh, the desire to leave and the desire, you know, just all these all these various decisions that were made very. Uh, I don't want to say impulsively, but without any real deliberation it was just like we got to do this and we got to do that and that and that it's so easy because you know i like to compartmentalize things as most people do and i was like well i got to get the house i got to get the studio i got go get a new car i got to do this and that and the other and it was just like done within like it seemed like two weeks upon arrival and i was already set up and ready to go i love how you just put your mind to it and you just as you say compartmentalize and check the 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 items off the to-do list Hmm. get it done and move on yeah. What about the process of getting work? That whole, you know, hey, I'm the new guy in town. That was the trick. And and to be honest with you, I what I didn't really feel truly like a professional until I moved to Los Angeles because it was like, okay, now I got to put on the big boy pants and get to work. And I don't know why I, it it was, but I initially started putting in um, ads in Craigslist. And as I recall, I mean, it's been years since I've done this, but once you place an ad in Craigslist, you know, within a few hours, it's like at the bottom of the list and you've won it on the front page. And, you know, so you have to keep re-upping the thing constantly. So it was like a daily grind just to keep this thing happening. And and I acquired a few people that way and just had some, you know, it was, it was kind of a everything. I was like, I was like, you know, record your band here to some extent. And it was like one day I'd be doing uh, some sort of a band-related project, or I'd do doing a mixing project, or I'd be editing uh, voiceover demo reels. You know, it could just be, and it was it was kind of like that for a little while until I'm not sure where there was. I don't want to call it a tipping point transition, maybe. Yeah, I think there was something like that, but it just got to where I started getting just calls for me to do what I do, whatever the hell that was. And also one of the, the key things was when I got into that studio situation, we were one of the first or one of the 
only studios in Los Angeles that could cut drums. We had a full drum room. I mean, literally, when you look out the window while you're cutting drums, you see the Hollywood sign. It's like the Hollywood Hills are like right there in plain view of the studio window. And that was, what was that, like 2005, 2006. And right before that, there was that period where all the major studios closed and they were left with like, you know, guys that had their home studios or, uh, you know, there were very little places to go and record drums. And I had all the inputs and we had all the mic pre's and all the mics and, you know, the room to do it. So we got a lot of calls for doing drums. And I, and, you know, it's kind of like, you open the door and you you, you create that uh, situation where people just come through and then you establish a relationship with them. And then, you know, one day you're cutting drums and the next day you're, you know, producing their entire record. You know? I'm puzzled. So you're saying that, that that at that time that a lot of studios closed. I mean, what about what about East West and uh, United and East West was that was ocean. That was cello. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it had closed for a, an interim, and then East West came and bought it. Okay, but, okay. But there was that period where it was it was almost as though there there was no middle class, if you will. There was okay. either like you go and spend two grand a day, or you you know fucking don't record drums at all. You know. I see. I see. So you're saying like just there are studios to cut drums, like Capital, of course. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, of a particular class. You either go high end or you go low end. Right, right. And we kind of bridged that. And then we started getting a lot of higher end clients because we could accommodate an $800 day or a $1,000 day versus, you know, $2,000 at, you know, Oceanway or whatever. I feel like that was kind of where the traffic uh, started. And then somewhere along the way, I just started mixing a lot. But what happened was somewhere along the way, I decided that I'd come full circle and I had gathered all these tools and all these skills and through doing all these things repetitively, I was able to determine what I enjoyed and what I felt I could contribute most artistically. And I came back around to being an artist again in some capacity. And obviously you can't just go, okay, I'm just going to go do this now and, you know, slough off my entire career and anything I'd uh, attempted to establish. But I knew that that was kind of my calling. And, and then I started writing more and producing more. And then it was kind of like, I wasn't engineering at all as an, as a hired engineer by any, I didn't really do that a lot, to be honest with you. I mean, I would engineer all the projects I would produce but I was either for hire rather I was either producing or I was mixing where I am now is I'm kind of just writing and producing and the way I produce or a way I like to produce is I just end up doing everything and it's all very intuitive and it's all instinctual and it's it's very much a straight line and I try to be as discreet with how I go about it because it, I kind of feel, and I think I mentioned this to you the other day about feeling more akin to a a, a film director mm-hmm. than I do a music producer, because those guys, you know, like, and I'm by no means comparing myself to Stanley Kubrick in any capacity, but just what he did in terms of his his uh, his his work ethos or all of the things that he sort of 
contributed, which was, you know, he would, he usually didn't write the project. I don't, I don't think he wrote anything except Eyes Wide Shut, maybe Barry Lyndon. Anyway, but he would, he would direct it. He would be a cinematographer in some capacity, but he, he could, he was also the still photographer and, you know, he was there in the editing and so forth and so on, but he just wanted to make film. And that was pretty much the MO, you know, I'm going to go make film and whatever I can contribute to that, I will do that. So that was kind of what I kind of do. I just like making music. And that's literally my entire existence. I don't have a girlfriend. I don't have a wife anymore. Oh no. Yeah. Well, that's okay. That's a whole other story. We're (laughs) great friends still. That's so that's good. Okay. I think one of the things that I discovered is that I'm very much an extremist in that I can't do more than one thing 100%, which makes sense, obviously. But a lot of the time we spend, again, compartmentalizing and apportioning our time in how we do it. And you can be 100% at this for this time. I don't know that I work that way. I don't know that I'm designed that way. Or maybe I'm just full of shit and it's just a scapegoat, (laughs) (laughs) which is quite possible and highly probable. But I think that's kind of my calling is just to be that I can go be a hundred percent and completely devote my entire existence to making a record. And I live and die by that. And that's the other thing is I think the things that you choose to live for are also the things you should be willing to die for as well. And I, I know it sounds morbid and, you know, hippy dippy and everything, but that's kind of how I approach making music. Like I want that, to be the, you know, if that's the last thing I leave behind, I want it to be the best thing it could ever be. You know, that's a super high bar to shoot for, but if I can shoot for the middle, I'll be okay. <laughs> you know, if I may ask regarding your divorce, was that uh, directly related to your audio career or, or not? I think that might've been the nail in the coffin. I think that she and I, when we first got together in 1998, we had such a mutual admiration for each other. I think we just wanted it to fucking work. You know what I mean? It was like, we like each other, but I had never learned to be present. And that's one of the things I learned about ambition is that I had always been ambitious, which meant that I was never in the moment. I was always thinking ahead, the next thing, the next thing. And I think I could just never be, I didn't have the the skill or the tools to be that person, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Completely. And fortunately we, we parted without any resentment or weirdness or anything like that. And we're still friends. And I, I, as a matter of fact, we went to lunch a couple of, maybe a month ago, but yeah, I mean, it just didn't, we got to where we were ships passing in the night and she had like a nine to five job off on the weekends, very linear whereas mine was just erratic and all over the place. And then you have that initial period in your life where you're you're building a a business and you're trying to create momentum and you have to be there. You you know, if a call comes through, if you don't take the call, you can't pay the bills. And so I missed a lot of vacations. A lot of the vacations that we took were work-related vacations. Oh, we're going to San Francisco. Yeah, but we're going for AES. You know what I mean? So (laughs) it's like, I hope you you know, I hope you're happy with that. You know, sorry about Hawaii or Turks and Caicos some other day. Right. So So nowadays you're, uh, you're hyper-focused on what you're doing. You were talking about on the phone the other day when we, uh, chatted, you were telling me, I I just heard about your podcast uh, on Facebook 
because you'd essentially been in a bubble. You'd been making a record. Was it the Billy Ray Cyrus record? We did Billy Ray Cyrus's record, and I have a new studio partner and a new studio and everything. And he also is an artist, and he he was he's a very established artist. He was the lead singer and main guy in the band Godhead. And he then went off a few years ago, maybe, well, God, longer than that, maybe 12 years ago, bought a building in, in North Hollywood, created, there's there like four studios there, like Christopher Titus st- stores his, car, his vintage cars there. So it's like a little small community, but he and I share the facility, and he's also an artist. So what I've been doing for the past two years is he and I did Billy Ray Cyrus's record. I did another EP before Billy's record with Jason. And then as soon as we finished Billy's record, we started with Jason's album. And we, we basically delivered 10 songs, I think in May. And in May, there was some interest from a major label and they said, Hey, we love this. This is going to be great. We'd love to, you know, give you a deal and whatnot. And could we get like maybe five more songs like these three that you've done? And I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. Of course. So as, as deals go, they get stretched out over time. And the next thing you know, it's been like four months. And then what are we going to do? Stop. So we ended up, we've, I think we have like two albums now two like a complete, you know, double album if he wanted to Hmm. but i think what we're going to do is we'll probably just take you know pull songs from you know the the larger lot of songs and uh release those as one album and then he'll be able to go off and tour and then after that cycle come back and probably have pretty much another record already done so there won't be that stress of having to write on the road and you know what i mean so we have a big head start how do you manage the financial end of things and still stay focused because obviously with intense work and intense focus on the craft, if you stay so focused on that, there's not always time to deal with scheduling and money and billing and all the other things that are occurring behind the scenes in life. I would probably have to digress back to when we were talking about the marriage and that sort of thing. When I was a kid, I was six years old and I got a copy of the Kiss Alive album, and I looked at that, and I said, I want to do that. Obviously, I haven't pursued the path of a six-year-old's declaration, but to some degree, I'm kind of doing that. What I realized in being married, I don't think that I was true to myself, and I think I lost some of myself in that period, and it's not anyone's fault. It's just something I had to discover through doing it being actionable, you know, and saying, yeah, I'll get married, you know, let's do this. Once I realized I had completely lost touch with my entire self and my identity, that's when our marriage started tanking and it was kind of like the end of the, an era. And once I regained a bit of who I was or who I thought I was, that's when it just like, I just got busy. Everything fell into place. I started attracting all these things back into my world. And uh, again, it's one of those inexplicable occurrences that just kind of happened. And I was just like, oh, this is cool. So I can just be myself and that's good enough, you know? (laughs) And, And then I started making decisions based upon what one guy can do. And whereas a lot of people might, who have a family and a mortgage and the whole thing, and they have this expense and responsibility. Well, let me let me 
expound on that just before I go too far left with that is that I understood the pressure of having that responsibility at one time and having to go to work and taking whatever fucking job I could musically or otherwise, mostly musically. I haven't done anything else in a decade or at least, but, and I think that apart from very high cortisol levels <laughs> was very <laughs> detrimental because I, I couldn't, you know, if you're constantly stressed about making ends meet every day of your life, and if your wife is happier, or if you know, if if AES is a, a significant enough tri vacation for the two of you, when I removed that, I could now just do my own thing, and I had less overhead, so I could be more committed to making art. And I know that sounds you know new agey and silly, and kind of corny. But that's literally all I wanted to do when I was six years old. So somehow or another, I've found my way back to being an artist and doing it with the least pressure that I've ever experienced. It's been so liberating not to have that sort of responsibility. My focus and responsibility is to the artist I work with because, you know, I mean, I could be very well be the sacrificial lamb for their record and good for them because they get the guy that's completely committed 100% to their project, you know? Mm -hmm. Let's expound on the original question. How do you structure your life financially? Is it that you just try to create the least amount of overhead you can for yourself so that you're not really worried about that? There is that. And I, and I think that came from having been frivolous at certain parts of my life in the past not crazy, but I think I just realized because there was a lot of collateral damage in a divorce. And d despite your best effort, you know, you're, you're, there's going to be some fuckery involved. You know what I mean? Unfortunately. And, you know, when, when you build something based upon two incomes and then one of those disappears and you still have the same expenses, you know, it's it just probably not going to work out the way you you've been conditioned to. So, you know, I did have to make some adjustments and it was very challenging, like and extremely challenging, but I came out on the other side. And I think a lot of what I do because of the writing and the production, there's more residual income from that, especially as a writer. I could basically do a project and because I try to live so below my means for sure, just because I want to be able to have the freedom to make music without the stress. And I realized that requires a little bit of uh, monetary security. If you get hired to do a song or somebody says, hey, let's write a song for this. And you go, let's do that. I'll go produce it. We'll write it. Da, 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 da. And within a year, you know, you might, it might get placed. It might get placed immediately. It might get placed, you know, a year from then. But, you know, it, it could be very profitable to where I could take that and just say, all right, now I don't have to work for the rest of the year. And I can go do this album now because of that one song I wrote in my bedroom and produced in, you know, in my bedroom is now a, a commercial that's, you know, running for the next year and a half. I don't deal with really big artists on such a, an intense level. It's always in passing. Let's say you have a big artist approach you. Hey, man, we, you know, we'd really like you to produce our record. The excitement, in, um, of course, builds up and everybody gets into the, you know, let, they talk about the artistic side of it. Uh -huh. I'm assuming you don't have a manager. 
Yes. I don't now. So then it's it's upon you to say, okay, well, great, I'm going to do this record, but here's what it's going to cost. Money discussions with artists can be very challenging for some. Yeah. You know, I don't really have that kind of hang up because I, I did discover early on that my relationships are very discreet. And I think if I were to put or to put a manager in between myself and the client, it, you know, especially if it's somebody I already, I already work with, it would be kind of weird. It was like, okay, now you're going to go deal with this person. You know what I mean? That would be kind of weird. And plus I would have to increase that rate to compensate for the, the manager. So it's, it's a weird sort of area when I need that person, I think that it will just, they'll just appear, you know what I mean? Cause I've had a, 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 a couple of two of the main ones out here in Los Angeles that were, they were interested, but didn't really think they could do anything for me mm-hmm. any more than I was already doing. So it just never materialized. And I just kept going, okay, well, I guess I'll just keep <laughs> doing what I'm doing. So you don't have that problem just, you know, uh, discussing the financial matters with the artist. No, I like to take it, take care of that initially. So we just have that discussion and move on. You know, it's one and done. Let's just talk about it. Here's what it's going to cost. And, you know, it's it's different for every artist. And I will tell you, it's that there are so many different factors. For instance, if I were to write, it, like somebody said, hey, I want you to produce three songs. Okay. Do you want me to write those songs with you? That's a whole other scenario. I could do the whole thing on spec if I knew I was writing it because I have a stake in it, you know? And I know that I can find placement for that and I can license that no problem. If somebody says, we want you to do five cover songs, uh, I got to charge accordingly for that too because there is no licensing, not for me, not any publishing. There might be a mechanical. But, and and you know. do you charge for your, for your engineering part of that? Because No, I, I do it. It's all in. I you see. Know, it's, yeah. And I'll say it's like, Per song, this is what it's going to cost. And I kind of know, um, depending upon the project, whether it's a pop thing or it's a rock thing or, you know, whether they, you know, if they want live drums or they want this guy or that guy, then that's going to cost extra. You know, if they want Kenny Aronoff playing drums, well, you know, that's going to cost another thousand bucks a day. So interesting. So you just bring all of your talents to the table hmm. as a musician, as a producer, as an engineer, give them one price and Take care of business. Yeah. Hey, I hope you're enjoying the interview here with Mr. Stuart Carreras here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I want to take a sponsor break with Audio Technica for a bit and just remind you that uh, the end of the year is coming up. So the rebate program for the Artist Series mics is going to expire at the end of the year on December 31st. I want to make sure that you know that because they're doing 30 20 and $15 rebates on a variety of Artist Series mics. Very popular mic indeed now that it's been released as the uh, ATM 230. That's the uh, kind of the low profile Tom mic that AT has put out. And they're doing $15 rebates on those. They're also doing $30 rebates on the ATM 230 pack. That's a three pack of these Tom mics. And you might want to check those out as an alternative to, you know, maybe you're maybe you're a 421 person and maybe you thought I'd never change from 421s. You might want to investigate these before you come to that final conclusion. And uh, yeah, so get yourself a rebate in the process. And of course, click on the banner on the right-hand side of the page that says Artist Series Rebates and head over to audio-technica.com. It'll lay the whole thing out for you. You'll know exactly what to do. 
So let's get back into it here with our interview with Mr. Stuart Carreras here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I actually took a year off in 2013. It's kind of a weird story, but it was probably at the pinnacle of my divorce. And what was happening is I was seeing a lot of people passing away. It was really weird because it would be like somebody that I knew in high school from God, how long ago was that? <laughs> 1990. And that guy passed away, but I may have spoken to him on Facebook. And I was like, ah, oh, that's fucked, man. That guy was cool. You know what I mean? And then it would be a little closer, like a friend of mine's mother committed suicide. And, you know, I was like, ah, oh, we used to hang out. You know what I mean? Or so it, it eventually got really close to me. And then Mike Shipley and I, we were starting a kind of a production team and had been talking about it for years to that point, almost a decade at that in 2013. And we were looking for artists to work with and da, 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 da. And around, I remember, I still have the voice message. Mike called me from Nashville and he was working on the last Keith Urban record. And he said, this was on a Friday. And he said, um, yeah, I'm finishing up these overdubs with with Keith, and then I'll be back on Monday, and we'll get started with this new artist. Incidentally, that artist happens to be the record I'm making now with Jason Charles Miller. So Mike had often been kind of notorious for you know going radio silent for a while and going off the grid a little bit. So Monday rolled around, I didn't hear from him, and I was like, "Well, fuck! I just I guess I'll just go ahead and start this song with Jason." And then I'll just flesh out the arrangement just so there's a little progress so that when Mike and I get together, we can all, you know, have at least something to powwow over, you know, something tangible. And literally, I think it was, I want to say it was a Wednesday night, that, that Wednesday night. I hadn't heard from him in three days. I was finishing the song arrangement. We got it all fleshed out. And I, was, I just made like a MP3 I was going to send to Mike. I was literally about to email it to him. And I got a text from this artist, and she said, you know, I just talked to Dave Way, who just texted me, and said that Mike Shipley died. And I was like, I didn't even, I just looked at the phone like, huh? And was kind of dismissive of it. Walked Jason out to his car, and then he just came back up, his two, up to the studio and just sat there. And I was just like, okay, that's really weird. And then that's when I started having to, you know, uh, research what happened and if it was true and, it was. It, it was one of those epiphanal moments where I was just like, not that that would happen to me in the same way, but at least all the things that I aspired to be, and that was the result, I, I, was, I was really conflicted about it. So I just thought maybe that was a good time to take a break. Hmm. And it was interesting because my younger brother was living in uh, Dallas, Texas. And we were talking one night and I was like, you know, I feel like I just need some kind of change. If, if it's for a week or a weekend or a month or a year, 10 years, I just think I need to do something other than what I'm doing right now. I kind of spent about a month trying to figure it all out. Then I essentially took all my stuff, put it in storage, locked the studio and left with no, no agenda whatsoever, no plan, no nothing. And that was probably, probably the biggest risk I've ever taken because I had created, I 
spent my entire life getting to a certain place. And then I was like, eh, I can't do this anymore. I'm just going to go do something else. I don't even know what that is. So I basically went out to hit and stayed with him for a little bit. With your brother? Yeah, for a year. Yes. And I essentially lived like a monk for a year. I did nothing but listen to music. And I wanted to basically challenge everything I knew or thought I knew about myself. Like, you know, there was a six-year-old kid who saw a Kiss Alive album cover and said, I want to do that. And all these things that I identified myself with, I just thought it was important to assess that or reassess that rather and see if that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Fortunately, it all worked out and I was like, yeah, that's great. But what I really discovered was is that the more, the longer we live, the more experiences we have, the more fragmented life becomes. And those fragments just go everywhere, just like a hard drive. And sometimes you got to take a pause and just gather all those fragments and, you know, basically defrag yourself, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Okay, and, now I completely understand now. One of my f- uh, favorite things to always ask is, what's, mm-hmm. your, what's your financial relationship with gear? Do you go into debt for gear? Um, you know, what's, what's your financial philosophy in regards to your career in general? It's probably a bit more zen than anything. Well, as with everything I do, it's, it's, it's like, what do I need? What can I, how can I do the do the least and have the most impact, you know? So for me now, when before I had like, Oh, I had to get this flavor of preamp and this API and this, and this, this, and this, and this. And I'm like, when am I ever going to make that distinction in the fucking context of a mix? Anyway, I'm not going to be like, well, that's a grace designs audio freaking preamp on the hi hat, you know? (laughs) So, you know, so I kind of took the approach, uh, at least now, uh, of having a console, but not having a console. So I, I don't cut drums anymore. Not at my facility. So I, I'll go higher out or, you know, anything, but at my place. So I, I focus on what I can do, which is lots of guitars and vocals, anything that's probably not drums basically. So I thought, well, I probably don't need more than four channels at any point ever. So I went and got four TG twos, Chandler TG twos or, or, two pair, which are, you know, two channels each and that's it. And I use that for everything. We have like an Avalon 737, you know, a few other things, but it's, I really try to keep everything to just those preamps or just the Chandler's. So it's kind of a cohesive sound, you know? And, um, yeah, I could, I end up using the same mics. I, it's weird because I, when I came back, I was, I was away in Dallas for a year and I, I only, it wasn't until November 1st of 2014 that I came back. I took a year off, came back and then I restructured everything and reapproached it. New studio, new, new gear. And I spent more time buying guitars and guitar amps and guitar effects, like, you know, old school stomp boxes. Like you just got tons of that stuff, but I wanted to start at the source there, there are certain instruments that you can't really replicate without it being affected physically, like an omnicord. You know that little, you know the omnicord. Mm-hmm. Okay, it, it has its thing. You can't like recreate that. Otherwise, it's just a keyboard sound. You know what I mean? You have to actually affect it. So, 
that's kind of what I like about uh, guitar gear, analog gear, because I'll take a vibrato and I'll, you know, I'll tap my foot to the tempo of the song. And then right when it's time to do that, that's when I'll tweak the, the speed of the, of the, uh, the vibrato you know, so that it matches, but it's not perfect. It's like a feel thing. It's not like this perfect tap tempo thing. And I don't do that. I don't like doing that stuff in post either because then it's just, you know, it's rigid and then you try to manipulate it in a way where it sounds organic. And then it just sounds like a manufactured version of that. <laughs> so I, I don't know. Uh, I kind of like the idea of keeping it super simple you know, I, I recall early on when I was engineering and everything was new, everything, you know, there was all, there were all these very stringent rules about the three to one rule and there's a this and there's a that because I don't work with an engineer most of the time. So there's not a lot of empirical information being exchanged. Like I don't say, all right, could you set the mic up like this? I don't do that. I just go do it myself, you know, and that's part of the fun of getting set up because then you're having, a, you know, you're just setting up mics and you're having some ridiculous conversation with whoever's there but but i don't really look for sometimes if the mics are set up still and i plug in the guitar and it sounds great i don't need to go in there and check it out i don't need to look for a problem if i don't hear a problem it sounds like your approach is very organic and you're more focused on song source you don't seem too wrapped up in the gear part of it i have been and i and i think in a way, I am, but I don't acknowledge it as much as when I was a novice, I would say. There was a time where I was like, you remember when uh, you were probably on the DUC way back when, right? And then Jules was like, hey, mates, I'm going to start this little little club called Gear Sluts. And he, it was by invitation. And I remember I got an invitation from him in August of 2002. And I've been Gear Slut since then, right? I haven't been very active in many, many years, but still. But, you know, it was around that time that there was this, this huge, I don't know, it was like I didn't realize there were that many preamps at that time. And that was when Lynn Fuston was doing the preamp shootout and the 3D audio oh, yeah. uh, uh, mic shootout. And then you ha he, you'd get these CDs, and I remember I bought the CDs. And I'm listening to them, I'm like, yeah, that's a fucking eight, 1963 U47 through a Grace Designs. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm fucking talking about. You know what I mean? That might sound good when you press solo, and you're like, what do you think about these? But in the context of a song, a dense mix, you know, if you're paying attention to those things, I mean, it's kind of like the song must really suck ass. That, <laughs> that's the most redeeming component of the song. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So you have gone through some serious transitions. And from Hurricane Katrina and leaving New Orleans, that all seemed, in spite of the um, disaster element of it, uh -huh. you landed on your feet. But you definitely have been through some periods of reflection, obviously your divorce, uh, you know, has factored into who you are today uh, and what you're doing. It sounds like you're at a good place musically uh, speaking in terms of all of it. You know, you're, like I said, you're not really fixated much on the gear. You're more focused on the song and, yeah. and the tasks. Um, so if you're giving out advice to those listening, some students, many pros, that's, the good th the things that have worked for you in getting to a point where you're happy what what would you say 
is the key or a couple a couple key points well i i think the biggest factor is probably the rapport or the relationship that you create between yourself and the artist. And I remember once telling my then wife, it's weird. I keep going back to the same, like three elements of my entire existence. And I said, you know, apart from being married, there is no more an intimate relationship than that, which exists between a producer and the artist because, and this was something I had to come to terms with myself because I expected so much in such a matter of fact, casual way from an artist. It's like, you take a vocalist that comes in and just singing, just the fucking mechanics of operating your body to emit sound and, and do it emotionally. And just that. And you, you demand them to come in and say, now drop your guard, remove the walls, barely know who you are, now completely expose yourself to me so that we can capture this amazing performance. I mean, that's a tall order. And who has the audacity to expect that? You know what I mean? So there's a certain empath, I think, that has to be acknowledged. But really, I think it's, it's, it's uh, probably the relationship between yourself and the artist and ensuring that they can feel safe and you've created a, an environment where they can be themselves. Because if, once they clam up, you're done. You may as well just call it and you know, go home and everybody go you know, binge watch some TV show. My whole existence is just a succession of failures, you know, which I am thankful for because, you know, uh, I've, I, I willingly look for the opportunity to completely fall flat on my face, you know, at any turn. Because as long as I get up and try and make something of that, then that's really what matters, I think. And in terms of, a gear related question, find a, a, a small signal path, whether it's something very discreet, like one microphone into a preamp, into your converter, into Pro Tools, learn that, learn what you can do with that. I would say learning just how to utilize what you have is probably better than just having options, you know? And I, and I also think commitment is is key as well, because, you know, I think there's something to be said for, you know, a lot of people talk about their instincts and this and that, but having instincts, I think we all have, but trusting those instincts to go, I'm just going to roll with it. There's mm -hmm. nothing logical about anything I'm about to do. And I'm willing to go down that road for that reason. You know, it's like you hear us, you, you hear a vocal take and you go, that's, that's the one. I don't need to hear 12 more takes of it. I don't need to roll through playlists. You know, that's the one. But it takes years of colossal fuck-ups to get to that place where you feel comfortable doing that. You know what I mean? Oh, I know. And I mean, if I go back to records I've made when I was, you know, like 25, 26, oh my God, what a disaster. Yeah. I mean, I look back at some of that stuff and I'm like, who is this guy? And then you start getting inspired and you're like, I'm going to go back and remix some of this stuff. Oh. And it's like, you can't even do it. Like, how do you even do it? I know. It's a snapshot in time. It's it's really hard to let go. Uh, and we got to wrap up soon, but yeah. I wanted to ask you, so do you do straight up mixing for people now? I do. Yeah, I do. Uh, that's probably, apart from writing and producing, that would probably be the only real sort of work for hire that I would do. Are you an, uh, a hybrid guy, an in-the-box guy, a console? I am, I am now totally in the box. When I came back two years ago, new studio, 
And then what happened is when I was trying to move things into the studio, I was concurrently setting up my house. And I was like, well, I want to also have a mobile rig so I can work anywhere because the studio might be busy and I want to make sure I'm available all the time. You know what I mean? So that was the idea. And what happened is because the studio was booked for like a month or two and I couldn't get in there to really get set up and, you know, there was no downtime for us to plug new shit in, you know. I started, I was listening to music at my, in my bedroom whole, the whole time. And then I got so accustomed to listening to music in my bedroom that I started mixing records in here. I mixed Billy Ray Cyrus's record in my bedroom and it's in the corner of my room. On a laptop? Well, it's, it's, it's a pretty elaborate laptop setup, but it, you know, it's got the UA, the UAD Apollo and it's super duper, you know, Pro Tools out. And I have the Atom A7Xs, which, I never thought I'd be like listening to anything but NS10s for the rest of my life. I still have two pairs, one's at the, at the studio. But what happened is, and, and that's probably something I think is quite, um, you know, we, we've always been told that like at the core, you need to know your room, you need to have treatment, you need to have this, and you, you know, your, your relationship to the monitors and your listening environment is key, right? That is absolutely true. But I think even further, I don't have this room treated whatsoever. It's like literally was set up as a mobile rig that I just got accustomed to hearing how things sounded. And I was like, okay, well, let me mix something in here. And I go out and I listen to it and it sounds great. And I'm like, oh my God, how, this is heartbreaking because my entire life was invested in this idea that you have to have the whole studio. And then it got smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's just baffling to me. And I'm just like, this, it, this shouldn't be this way. And is it really that easy? And I guess it is, you know, if, if you're, if you can trust what you're hearing. And one of the, the other things that I, I've discovered I do is you know how people a lot of times mix in stereo, obviously, and check in mono. Well, I do the opposite. I ended up mix, I end up mixing everything in mono and then I check in stereo. So it's kind of a backwards approach or a polar approach to it. Um, That's interesting. I don't know why. Are you, are you, I, you're panning? Yeah. Well, what will happen is I will start the mix and I will establish something that sounds, you know, relatively cool and it's happening and it's bitching and whatever. And then I just fold it to mono and then I start making other moves. And it ends up being more of a, I spend more time making all the, I guess, minute changes um, with regards to how it functions in mono. Because generally what happens is I just take my iPhone and that's how I reference like literally right off the, the speaker, like just press play. That's how I reference everything. It's ridiculous. But yeah. And then I just, it, it's weird because then I catch myself. I'm like, oh, I need to put it back in stereo. I need to disengage the mono button, you know, so I can hear what it really sounds like. But it, it's kind of cool because I can just see how the relationship between the snare and the the top end, the vocal, and you, you know how this is sitting with this, and you know, I don't know. Hmm. As long as it works that way, it's kind of cool. And and you know, a lot of the music that I grew up listening to was that way. It was very simple. They didn't sit there and you know, you listen to the everything that J, uh, Jimmy Miller did with the Stones. You know, you you hear all that and you're like, that's fucking cool. You like you hear all these mono elements. There's no like stereo anything. You know what I mean? Maybe a shaker's in stereo or something, but it's all these mono elements and the summation of those elements that make it cool. And you're 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 balancing 
the shaker down here with an acoustic guitar, you know, a little up here, and then you just kind of tilt it. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not like guitar vocals. It's not like, like this destiny's child, super duper. Everything's, you know, <laughs> perfectly stereoed out and you're just an onslaught of, you know, stereoization. Do you ever not mix the projects that you produce? I end up really mixing everything I do and I end up playing 90% of the instrumentation too. Wow. So, so it's like a win-win. I get to do everything for the most part. And some of these things I master too, because it will be, you know, a lot of the things I do might be a one-off and it'll be like, okay, so now you remember that song we did eight months ago? And I'm like, I think so. And they're like, well, they want it for this thing. And it's going to be, can you just give it a good master? And I'm like, all right. So I ended up, you know, it's, I don't really prefer doing that. You know, I don't want to do every single thing because sometimes it'll be like from writing to mastering, and you know, everything in between. That's which is, that's quite the involvement. Yeah, and I and I think it just sometimes needs at least one other person to do what they do. You know. Well, Stuart, this has been great, man. It's good to catch up and hear what you're doing. You've uh, you've traveled quite a journey since I've last seen you. I've been in a bubble. I've been like in this creative bubble. That's good. Uh, <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Well, this is cool. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. And uh, at some point, I'll see you in person as opposed to Skype and, and Facebook. That. And uh, that's great, man. So uh, once again, thank you and take care. Matt, thank you. Thanks for having me. There it is, Stuart Carreras here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Stuart, if you're listening, it was great to have you on and I hope everybody enjoyed that. I certainly did. It was great to catch up with uh, Stuart and hear about what he's doing. So we are to, out of time, though, and we got to say thanks to everybody. Thanks to Stuart Carreras, of course, and we want to thank, of course, Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, Cole Williams. Thank our sponsors, Gearslets.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. And uh, want to thank you all, of course. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.